everybody welcome to episode 240 hey what's the number the number is 247 of cxo talk you know ai seems to be taking over our lives artificial intelligence is everywhere and at the same time everybody loves cruises and today and vacations right and today we are talking about the intersection of ai and cruises. And we have an amazing show. I'm so thrilled to welcome Saul Rashidi, who is the Chief Data and Cognitive Officer of Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. Saul, how are you? Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I, I look forward to this conversation very much so. So, Saul, tell us about Royal Caribbean and tell us about what you do. Let's start there. Sure, sure. Um, well, I think everyone knows who Royal Caribbean is. Um, we are leading in the industry for cruise lines. Um, we've got three brands, Royal Caribbean, we've got Celebrity, and Azamara. And earlier, I would say in Q4 of 2016, we're embarking on a huge transformational journey. And I know a lot of companies actually use that word pretty broadly as well, but I'm happy to say that um, we really mean it here. We're actually doing it. We've onboarded some phenomenal talent. Um, I would say, you know, humbly speaking, I was the latest addition to the group, um, and I am their current chief data and cognitive officer. The data side, for obvious reasons, um, everyone is shifting and pivoting towards becoming a more data-centric organization being able to collect the raw data that we have, converting it to information, and then building insights. And then the hardest part, I would always say, is being able to take action on the insights we gather. But the cognitive side, because in addition to just, I don't want to call it generic, but the general analytics that we like to run or the competencies we're trying to build internally, um, there's definitely a cognitive component. I personally don't like using the word AI. I think it's quite frankly, a bit overused in the marketplace. I think it's going to dilute the term and the power within a few years if we keep using it the way we do. Um, but more importantly, for those of us who've actually been in the industry for quite some time, we still understand AI is, term, is a term, but as an industry, it's still in its infancy stages. So I always use the term cognitive services or cognitive capabilities because the one thing that we do know that we do have and there are capabilities is around um, machine learning, adaptive learning, being able to train machines to understand intent, to be able to infer. So being able to combine both wanting to become a data-centric organization with embedding cognitive layers across our customer journey, this position was born and hence I became the chief data and cognitive officer for Royal Caribbean. Wow. So, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, it's a mouthful. <laughs> Apologies. No, it's great. So, so so given all of that just to set context mm -hmm. what is it that you do at royal caribbean exactly what's your what's your i know your title but but what does that encompass because one doesn't usually think about data and artificial intelligence in the context of cruises so how do they fit to, how do the pieces fit together Oddly enough, if you take a look at industries, consumer products and retail has done a phenomenal job. And if you ask me, airlines, CPG, and hotels closely following have done a phenomenal job of understanding who their guests are. 
And by knowing who your guests are, there's a level of personalization. There's a level of customization. You can make them feel important, even though you serve millions of guests a year. And that always resonates with our guests today. Their expectations are high. Their tolerances for delay are low. Um, and with all the information that we gather of them, their expectation is, is that we know who they are, where they're going, what they're doing, regardless of their status with a particular brand. So take what you've done with the airline industry, take what we've done in the hoteling industry, take what we've done with consumer products and retail, understanding where they shop, what they typically buy, making suggestions. It's all around enhancing the customer experience by knowing what they've done historically with us and then being able to predict, suggest, or infer what they may like to do with us in the future. What better industry than the cruising industry? Um, to be able to apply that same skill set. So that's what we're trying to do here at Royal. So for you, the use of these technologies is all about personalization and enhancing the experience of customers. And I'm assuming it's not just when they're on the ship, but before, before their journey and after. So maybe take us through the life cycle of that personalization. Sure. I mean, soup to nuts, if you think about it, um, it is the entire journey. From the first time they inquire about a promotion or a destination or a ship release to when they call back and they want to understand packages, offers, and promotions to when they put their first deposit down to when they put their last deposit down to when they have basic FAQs of, you know, the number one question, can we bring alcohol on board? Um, what's the dress code for a particular restaurant? What type of events do you have? Can we make reservations for a specialty restaurant? Um, we just added two to the party. Can we adjust our reservations? All the way to when they actually embark onto a ship uh, because there's a lot of compliance and regulations that we have to um, follow. And then, of course, the experience starts once they're on the ship. So whether they're with us three days, five days, seven or 14, um, being able to help them and make things just easier from where they are on the ship, where they can find something seamlessly, activities, events available to them, appropriate to their age level and their likes, all the way from the time that they disembark and then they give us feedback as to how their vacation went. Um, I don't know if you've ever been on a vacation, but I've been on plenty of vacations where I needed a vacation from the vacation. Um, that's the scenario we want to completely avoid. So our goal is to really enhance the customer experience across all touch points in that customer journey, the cruises. So let's, uh, let's talk about the data aspect. So these, uh, I was going to say operations on data, it sounds so clinical when we're talking about vacations and enabling a fun personalized experience so so where where does the data come from what kind of data are you using and then what happens to that data so that's it's a it's a phenomenal question in that the tagline of enhancing the customer experience and sort of embarking on a more personalized approach is, is the glamorous version of everything the unglamorous version is the work that we actually have to do with any company. And I've had the pleasure of working with the largest and the smallest of companies, um, financial industries, um, supply chain, manufacturing. And as we all know, in all of our environments, there are a ton of applications and systems that capture data. And to unify this information is an extremely overwhelming and daunting task. 
So we're no different than any other company in that we have multiple touch points. We have multiple organizations. We have multiple third parties that we work with who, quite frankly, do a phenomenal job of booking these reservations for us. However, do we necessarily have control or influence as to how the information is entered? No. Do we get all the information we want when we want? No. So being able to join all these disparate systems with different formats, types, comprehensiveness of data in the back end to sort of build a unified layer of who this guest is prior to them um, embarking is, is a very difficult task. And that's what we're currently doing. Um, being able to unify the guest. And everyone loves to call it as like the 360 view or the 360 profile of a guest. But um, I think that's like living in land of hobbits and unicorns. I think we all strive for it. It's a bit of a fantasy land. But the actual execution of it is, is very complicated. So the tagline and the glamorous version of it is more of a personalized experience across the customer journey. But to be able to do that, we have to codify all the different elements and facets and pieces of information that a guest shares with us and be able to make sense of it. And then we have to be able to provide that into the right hands of the right individuals who are going to encounter our guests at different points in the journey. So piecemealing all that together is, is what we're, we're taking on right now. I want to remind everybody that we're speaking with Saul Rashidi, who is the chief data and cognitive officer at Royal Caribbean. And right now there is a tweet chat going on using the hashtag CXO talk and you can send in your questions and we'll try to get to them. So Saul, you've, you've got this data, you're building up this profile of the guest. And so that's the, that's the first part of your, your job title, a chief data officer, but then you're also the chief cognitive officer. And so where does the cognitive or AI dimension come into play? Multiple, multiple layers. Um, our biggest challenge is not necessarily how to apply cognitive capabilities, but where to apply, because there's just so much room for opportunity. Leveraging video analytics on the ship, leveraging video analytics prior to embarkation and check-in, um, leveraging past preferences, sailing information to infer what they may want in the future, or even infer something they've never tried but could potentially like based on other feedback. A lot of it is being able to predict, infer, suggest in advance of the customer asking um, so that we could either do one of two things either enhance the experience because they go, oh, I never thought of that. That's amazing. Thank you for suggesting that. Or course correct anything that may go wrong or is about to go wrong in advance. So it, there's a number of, of opportunities we're trying to figure out where to actually apply because division is grand and it's wonderful. But I always say vision is nothing without complete and utter success of execution. That's interesting. Uh, you said uh, predict, infer, and what was the third one? Correct? Course correct, I think? Course Correct. So if there, if we can infer sentiment in advance, if there's a customer of ours who's not as happy um, as we'd like them to be, um, we have an opportunity to course correct because we can infer their sentiment based off of, let's say, video analytics or a video feed, or they shared something in a dialogue that was captured properly. And so we now know every interaction thereafter from crew to guest 
we need to be able to attend to that guest with a velvet glove um, because they did not have a good experience with us in one particular area. So we are going to more than make up for it in others. But without that knowledge, we won't be able to do that. Saul, we have an interesting question from Twitter. And uh, Chris Peterson asks, <laughs> do you know Chris Peterson? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, Chris Peterson is asking, uh, do you have years of data to ingest for training algorithms or is the data gathering and cleansing relatively new? This is a very interesting and very important question because data is, of course, the lifeblood of what we're talking about. And yet I think the, the data aspect is relatively new. Thinking about data for many organizations is still relatively new. And so how do Correct. you address this? So that's one of the things that we have to go through and figure out. There's just, um, on one aspect, it's going to be all historical data that's sort of going to go into our factory to give us some patterns, behaviors, things that we need to understand about each trip, each journey, each guest at an individual level. So all the way from a city of embarkation and the particular ship down to the guests, their individual, we need to get that historical view no matter what to understand trends and patterns. I think that's the, the obvious part. However, once they're on a journey with us, then it's a matter of gathering, how do we gather, I should say, that live data feed so that we then know, do their current patterns match the historical patterns that we have? And if so, great, we know how to treat this. But if their current patterns don't match the historical patterns we have, how do we create a predictive model or an algorithm to include those exclusions or those exceptions um, and be able to understand how to approach them thereafter? So it's going to be a combination of both, but more definitely heavier on the ingest all the data, understand the historical patterns, infer, um, and then move forward with action from there. That's pretty incredible. Um, and I, I need to mention that I, I, I happen to know that your ships are floating data centers. They are. And you, and you talk about it that way. We do. Um, each ship we refer to as a floating city with its own infrastructure, its own data center. Um, and that's one of the challenges, oddly enough, that I don't think anyone ever considered. So. Here's an example. Has anyone ever flown with American or United or Delta? They all have their own in-house in Wi-Fi system and in-flight. For the most part, it works fine. But every now and then, there's an issue, and you don't understand why. And it's probably because they're going over water. There is something about water and satellite feeds. It's like oil and water. They just don't get along. Um, now, by no means am I smart enough to figure out where the issues lie. I don't know if it's the reflection, but satellite and water and Wi-Fi just don't like each other. Um, well, our entire operation is on the water. So every ship has to have its own infrastructure, has to have its own data center to support that. But the challenge that we're trying to overcome is how do we create near real-time syncing of data between our major applications and systems that are on the shore with those that are on the ship. Um, that's the problem we're, we're currently looking to solve. Okay, so now if we bring these two pieces together, you're collecting, so you've got, you've got models of customer, historical customer behavior. Correct. And then you're collecting data on the cruise because your ships are floating cities with their own data centers. That's correct. And 
you are now doing comparisons of the the models that you're of the data with your models collected on the ship against the historical models, and at the same time, you are I'm going to use, I'll use the term suffering or challenged with the fact that satellite and water don't mix. Is that correct. sort of more or less correct? <laughs> and that's and that's the foundation. That's the core. And then the layer of that is is when the two data sets do combine. How do we provide that layer of analytics to the crew who interact with our guests on a daily basis so that they then know what they have to do to make that experience as best as possible for each guest that's on one of our ships? Because that's a, at the end of the day, that's all that matters to us, to make sure every guest leaves that ship completely fulfilled, more than content, absolutely happy with their friends or family or whoever else they join. So Okay, so that paints the picture of let's say the ground level foundation on which you have to build. That's correct. We have uh, another question from Twitter and Scott Weitzman from IPsoft is asking about gamification, <laughs> I'm getting tongue tied here, gamification as part of the AI aspect in the service of the customer experience that you were just talking about. So what about gamification? All I can say at this point right now is TBD. We'll probably have to discuss that in a few months from now. <laughs> so I, I'm sure it sounds like the, uh, let me ask Let me ask you this, uh, where are you in the AI journey? AI is new for everybody. And so where are you in that journey, would you say? You know, so the interesting thing is, is I had the pleasure of being part of the leadership team with IBM Watson. And um, we took Watson to market for the financial industry. And so you kind of get to learn the advantages, the disadvantages, the maturity of the industry. Of course, that was about three, four years back. Um, so things have definitely advanced. But oddly enough, things are still in R&D mode. Um, so the good news is, is we've got over 1,300 companies who are invested in AI. About $9 billion of research are going into AI. So we have plenty of options. Our challenge is understanding which option or which vendor to choose and select based on not only their longevity within the industry, um, but their ability to demonstrate and perform and execute. Because most things are still in R&D phases. Most companies are still being seed funded. Um, so longevity is very key for us understanding their capabilities and functionalities, because we have a lot of companies, unfortunately, of that 1300 that say they AI based, but all they really offer is a chat bot. Chatting <laughs> is not a new technology, yet they're putting it under the AI umbrella just because there's a bit more glamour to it. So we have to sift through, unfortunately, a lot of companies who claim to be AI companies, but aren't. But then we have to go through our use cases to understand, okay, of these use cases, which provides the most amount of value to our guests and therefore our business, which vendor matches up? And luckily, we're currently in that journey right now. We're looking at partnering up with multiple vendors to solve multiple problems on the AI front. Um, we are actually standing up an AI team right now. We've built a few prototypes. Um, we're campaigning to see which one has the most bang for its buck, if you will. And uh, in terms of execution and deployment, well, it's all on the roadmap. That's pretty interesting. So, so as you're trying to find the right solutions, vendors, products, you're finding that 
many software companies talk about AI, but it's really just a, let's say, a thin veneer for products that, that are really not AI? Is that Fortunately, and I'd like to say I even had one <laughs> one vendor say, you, you like to expose vendors. I'm like, I don't like to expose vendors. I just don't want the sales pitch and saying it's AI when, in fact, it's not. The technology that you're going to market with has been around for more than a decade. Um, so it's not new. Just putting on a new skin on top of it doesn't make it AI. Um, so I think a lot of companies claim it. I think very few can actually deliver on it. Well, that's, you know, making for for enterprise software vendors in general, <laughs> making yeah. sales claims that are this goes this goes back probably uh, to the beginning of enterprise. <laughs> indeed. It's it's the game. It's the game. So, you know, uh, I think maybe the cognitive part of my title is a BS detector. <laughs> That's really that's really interesting. So, and I, and I take that. I was going to say it's a sign of the lack of maturity in the industry. But at the same time, if you look at on-premise uh, ERP, which is a very mature industry, in a way, you have kind of the same set of issues. Not exactly, but similar. Oh, one hundred percent. Every industry started this way. You know, the AI is just the new buzzword. It's the new trend. Um, everyone wants a piece of the pie. What it actually means, I think, very few can really define. Um, I was speaking with one of the Gartner analysts, and it was so funny because I thought that we would have a clash of opinions because I'm coming into the industry with a background in AI, knowing that, hey, a lot of things are still in its infancy stages, and what's being claimed in the market as AI is, is a really strong stretch. So I had a feeling that we were going to disagree, but he absolutely came on board. He's like, we're still working our way through it. It is so early um, to claim something is truly AI and to start scaring folks. Robots are replacing humans. We're like, we both agreed. We're so far away from that. Not even close. And most of the demonstrations, the videos you'll find on YouTube, it's all projections of the art of the possible. Very little of that. I would even debate even a, a few percentage points of that has actually been implemented or deployed or tested and tried. But hey, it sounds good, right? And that's what everybody seems to want to hear. It's all about packaging. You know that. <laughs> Somebody must be buying it. I'm assuming it's like telemarketer. Somebody must be answering the calls. Well, by default, if you have a great name to it or a great title to it, they're going to go see the show. Well, everyone's buying stuff to see the show. <laughs> so it sounds like as part of this journey, one of the dimensions is thinking through the role of your internal personnel. Uh, what are the skills that they need? How will processes change or stay the same? And, and actually, we have a, a question comment from Twitter, another one. Arsalan Khan is asking about, you, you spoke about the customer journey. And do you think at all about the, or, or how do you think about the employee journey and the use of technology to support that? Arsalan, that's a phenomenal question. Um, so guest, if we had to prioritize, is our first priority. But crew and employee most definitely is second priority. Because our guests are only as happy as our crew treats them. And you've got to make the crew happy in order for them to have this sort of exuberant, effervescent way of approaching our guests and making them happy. So guest is definitely close behind. We're already starting to tinker and toy and build some prototypes for them. Because um, unfortunately, today, a lot of stuff has been very laborious and manual. I mean, we're still talking about printouts and things like that. Um, 
So being able to arm them with technology that gives them information faster that they can then take action on um, is one of our top priorities. It is one of the things we're trying to solve right now. Um, and it's going in parallel with how can we make the customer journey better. Um, so it hasn't been forgotten. It's top of mind. If it's not one and a half, it's, it's number two. How do you uh, divide up your time in terms of, I'm thinking uh, with your data hat now, and is this even a, a reasonable question? So I was going to ask, how do you divide up your time in terms of thinking about, you know, data associated with customers, data associated with employees, data associated with operational operations? Uh, how do you, what are the buckets that you yeah. think about? I don't know if I was trained this way or born this way, but I feel like my brain's a bit of a relational database. I can compartmentalize very, very well, and I can make the joins and the linkages very, very well. So I've always told my team, I've said, by no means am I the smartest person, but I'm very resourceful. I'm relentless in my pursuit, and I know which compartment to pull when. <laughs> so <laughs> if you ask me which way my majority goes, I haven't quite quantified that, to be honest with you. But I have, I, for some reason, my brain just works that way. I'm just analytical in nature. I can compartmentalize and I can create linkages when, when appropriate. How is all of this changing the cruise industry? Because I think that context also is, is interesting to see, see the digital, I hate to use the term, but the digital. digital transformation of the cruise industry. Yeah, it sounds very cliche. <laughs> but it's true. To be honest with it, everyone's going through it. Uh, whether they're competitors or allies or partners of ours, everyone in the cruising industry is embarking on this journey. And if you think about it, you know, airlines sort of took the path forward, lessons learned, hotel industry is following up second, and the cruising industry is slowly behind, is, is behind them, and we're, we're up, we're, we're in line to be third. But it would, it's behooving all of us to go down this path because we have so much information on our guests that we simply aren't leveraging. And our focus has been around nothing but excellent customer service. Um, but we can do so much more if we were to just understand or take the time to understand who our guests are in advance so we can couple it with the customer service that we provide. And I think every cruising uh, company in our industry is taking that approach. I mean, in what other world do you have guests on a container, if you will, for seven days in a row enjoying the products and services that you and only you provide to them continuously. You know, consumer products and retail, what is it? They say that the average um, attention span of a consumer or of an individual shopping online is at most seven seconds. We've got seven days. So it, it would behoove us to start taking a look at this stuff. So everyone's on a very aggressive path forward to make it happen. I can only imagine because uh, people get bored pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the fact that, quite frankly, the cruising industry is billion, I mean, billions of dollars are generated. That's how many people actually cruise. And you've got their attention for that long and continuously. Most of our businesses repeat customers. So they didn't get bored. They like the products and services. We're always coming up with new ideas. And I have to say, it's not just us. It's everyone in the cruising industry. I have tremendous respect for everyone. Um, to keep a consumer's attention in this day and age where we expect nothing but just high expectations and fast turnaround times for seven, 14, 10 days in a row is an enormous task. 
Um, and, and we've done so phenomenally. It was one of the reasons why I joined the firm to begin with. And uh, we have another comment from Twitter, and this is from VJ, and I am always going to, Vijaya Sankar, and I, Vij, and I, who is my good friend, and I never get his name right, and he says hi. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so I know the I think I know the answer to this, uh, which is I am sure you're thinking about data as a competitive advantage. Can you elaborate without, and I'm not trying to go into your trade secrets, but can you elaborate how you think of data as being a competitive advantage? Two, I think there's two facets to that. There's no doubt everyone's trying to be more data-centric. There's no doubt that everyone's trying to be analytics-driven. But what we're hoping to do different here is one, one of two things, but hopefully two of two things. Knowing what to do when the data is provided. So let's say driving the right type of analytics is one, and that's a very difficult challenge because it's a bit of a subjective exercise. Some of it's quantifiable, some of it's not. You can't always place an ROI on an MPS score. Um, so knowing what type of analytics to drive um, is key. So that's something we're working through. But not to use another cliche term, but insight into action, I would say, is the second facet of that. Of now that we have the information, now that it tells us some really good information, like some good data points, how do we then convert that into action and actually do something about it versus, oh, this is interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Let me just adjust a few things that I'm doing right now. No, I don't think the intention is just to adjust. I think it's fundamentally changed the way we do business. But the challenge is, is how do you get individual business groups who've been in an industry 10, 15, 20, 25 years to change their way of thinking and not going off of necessarily just experience with a combination of gut, um, with a combination of past performance, but also using data they may not be comfortable with because they haven't seen it before to modify their decision points moving forward. Okay, you know, we, we only have a, a short time left and I hate to break off the conversation about data and AI because it's so really interesting and I feel like we have just not even scratched the surface here. Right. But there is one topic that I think that we should talk about and that is uh, the, the role of women in technology. You're, you, you're unique because there are very few, you're, you're a woman in this, this senior role, but there are very few chief data officers uh, and fewer still who are women. And so maybe can you just share some thoughts on, on that important topic? Sure. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that's where I have to give royal credit because there's layers upon layers upon layers of this one. The chief data officer role in general is newer in the industry. And I think we're also trying to figure out how the chief digital officer, chief data officer, the chief information officer intertwine to create very, very strong pillars to support the companies and its growth. Being a female in the industry, in and of itself, has had some challenges, but it's been a very, very fun journey. Um, but I also have to give credit, not only did they, to, to Royal, because not only did they create this position, um, they absolutely are invested in women in leadership positions. But they also actually brought me on board five months pregnant. So <laughs> I started back in April when I was five months pregnant. I'm actually nine months pregnant right now, doing a couple of weeks. Um, but for them, it was a matter of, listen, if you have the right skill set, 
you're passionate, you're relentless in your pursuit, and we trust that you're going to be able to do this. It doesn't matter your condition, situation, background, or whatnot. You're the right person for us. And so even though I was a consultant for them, I officially converted over to become a full-time employee because it was just an investment. They felt a strong desire they needed to make, and, and they saw something in me and the team that I brought on board, and so here we are. So while I want to take the credit, um, it's been a very fun and interesting journey to get at least to the position or the caliber that I'm at. It was really Royal's belief and investment on bringing me on board. So I definitely want to give a shout out there. So they hired you to be chief data officer when you were five months pregnant and now you're nine months pregnant, which yep. I'm assuming means that pretty darn soon you're going to be having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I'm technically due in about two, three weeks. So anything after two weeks is fair game at this point in time. Um, but in the past three, four months, we've been working aggressively, not only building up the team, gaining enough momentum in areas. Um, working through convincing the business this is the right thing to do, showing incremental progress, because um, momentum for us is huge. And even though I'm going to take that three to four weeks off, we can't stop momentum. It's something I'm adamant about. And the team is, uh, they're, they're living that charter day by day. Speed and communication are the two things I always say are top of mind. We're not careless. We're not thoughtless. But at the same time, we, we don't sit and wait. Um, our, our pursuit for progress is extremely aggressive, I would say. Um, but yeah, that that's true. That They brought me on board knowing I was five months pregnant. Um, and I don't anticipate the pregnancy slowing me down. I think if anything, it'll actually give them a break, <laughs> to be honest with you. Because having lived in New York City and moving to Miami, my pace is just naturally a lot quicker than most. So you must have given some thought to this notion of work-life balance and juggling work and juggling the new baby. And I think that's a question that many people have. And so maybe share your thoughts on, on that topic. Sure. Um, I don't know. I don't think I believe in the term balance. I don't, I think things will take different priorities at different points in time. And your best shot at doing everything is just to be comfortable with change and with the fact that you're going to be discontent with almost everything, but your level of discontent is more than likely content for most people. So I have extreme high expectations of myself. I want to be the best wife. I want to be the best mother. I want to be the greatest executive they've ever hired. I want to be a tremendous leader of the people who work for me. There are so many things that I want. There's a creative side to me. I like to make jewelry. Like there's just so many facets. You know, I used to be an ex-athlete. I want to get back into doing triathlons. And you don't get to all of it all at once. So if you could almost talk yourself into, okay, I could, at best, of the eight things I'm interested in, I'm going to focus on these three for this following quarter or this year. Then I'm going to pivot and focus on these three at this point in time. I think then you start getting comfortable with stuff. But if you expect too much and all at once, I think that's just a recipe for disaster. So, so as we kind of draw to a close here, what advice do you have for uh, women who want to have these enter these kind of leadership positions and just feel they're, they, they're experiencing a glass ceiling? If the issue is you're experiencing a glass ceiling, do something about it. I do know many women who tend to sit and wait because they don't want to be perceived as being difficult or being aggressive or asking for too much. 
I think it all comes down to delivery and tone. If you're careful with your delivery and tone, go to bat for yourself. You're the only one that's going to protect yourself. And are you going to have a few hiccups along the way? Absolutely. That's natural, but everyone does. But at a minimum, at least be confident enough to go to the table and ask for what you want. You know, there's a major stat that says women don't get paid as much as men do. And I sometimes wonder the legitimacy of that because I wonder, is it because they don't get paid because we're devalued or is it because we don't ask for what we want and we don't negotiate well? Uh, Anyone who knows me knows that I go to the table always negotiating because I'm comfortable there and it's okay. And as long as the delivery is done right, it should be perceived as a strength and not as, as a weakness. So... I would say if you're frustrated, do something about it and don't be afraid of how you're going to be perceived, but be thoughtful in your tone and delivery. I would also say if you have desires of getting to a certain level, for me, having a very supportive spouse has been absolutely tremendous in the journey. I have this unquenchable desire to keep going higher and higher. And luckily, my partner in crime, my husband, Drew, um, is very, very supportive of that. And so, you know, we we co-lead, we co-parent. There isn't a primary, if that makes any sense. And then a third, I think it's really the culture of the organization. Some organizations claim that, you know, they're number 16 in the 100 best companies to work for. I always question the metrics behind that. I said, well, how did they judge that? Is it based on compensation? Is it based on ability to move up? Or is it based on the fact that they support you when family priorities kick in or with health priorities kick in? And I think if you can combine those three together, why would you not be able to go upwards if that's your goal? So it's not just a matter of being assertive, although being assertive is extremely important, but also when you go into an, an environment, look critically and make sure that they're not just that it's they're not just paying lip service to supporting women in leadership roles. One hundred percent. The environment has to cultivate, has to enable you to be able to accelerate in the position that you're in. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't make sense to be there. Sounds like uh, like a lot of companies are putting out hype about uh, supporting women <laughs> in leadership in the way that some companies are putting out hype around AI. Yeah, <laughs> it's, there's a lot of lip service out there. Uh, and I'll call BS. There's a ton of lip service. So do your diligence, do your homework. And if it's not a right fit, don't be afraid to leave because there's always a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. I would never have thought I would have uprooted my family at five months pregnant with a two-year-old, by the way. We started very late in life, moved from New York City to Miami to start over if it wasn't the right environment. Do your due diligence and don't be afraid to take chances. That is pretty incredible. And what an endorsement of Royal Caribbean. Saul Rashidi, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back another time. 100%. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. You have been watching episode number 247 of CXO Talk. We've been speaking with Saul Rashidi, who is the Chief Data and Cognitive Officer of Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. Saul, thanks so much, and I hope we'll see you again back here soon. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for watching. We have two shows next week. Go to CXOTalk.com. And please like us on Facebook. We'd really appreciate that. Take care, everybody. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.